I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the chief R Christianity admin. <laughs> Not really, but honorary. Uh, that's, that's the saddest occupation I've ever heard. Uh, I'm <laughs> Dean Detloff, uh, the chief R Christianity uh, troll. <laughs> oh, no. Lifetime ban. Honest question from an atheist over here, huh? <laughs> that's right. You know it. Uh, honest, honest question from a true Christian. Blah. <laughs> Could God even make a shirt so tough he couldn't rip it himself? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, mods asleep. Post uh, flying spaghetti monster uh, memes. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> my subreddit. My community. Okay. Wow. That's we've had a lot of fun here so far. <laughs> Well, um, this week on the Magnificast, we're starting out a uh, a new arc, and you're here to witness it. It's going to be cool and kind of different. Um, so this week, we're starting uh, a few series of episodes. Uh, where we're going to focus on uh, postmodern philosophers and their uh, impact on uh, Christianity and on Marxism and the way Christians and Marxists have read them. Uh, postmodernism is kind of like a hot topic that Christians hate and Marxists hate, but Dean and I both are kind of into, I mean, <laughs> as much as anyone's into postmodernism, uh, you know, all these, all these big French guys have definitely, uh, left their toll on the way we think about things. So we thought we would do a, a cool arc of episodes where we could talk about them. Yeah. This week we are going to start off talking about hospitality as a theme uh, because that is a, a really interesting concept uh, that comes up in a French thinker named Jacques Derrida and popularized by uh, a U.S. guy named John Caputo. Um, I don't know. Probably there's a pretty big di Venn diagram of people who listen to this podcast and also know who John Caputo is, but if you don't, don't worry. We'll tell you later. Uh, if you are into hospitality, though, as a theme, um, we should tell you that our friends at G's Magazine are about to publish a whole issue themed around hospitality. And that's kind of what got us thinking about uh, this concept and, and made us think about doing this theme. So we encourage you to check that out. Uh, G's does some really amazing stuff, kind of one of the most interesting uh, media projects of, of Christians in North America, I think. And if you want more hospitality, you know where to find it. Cool. Well, um now, now that we've gotten to that, let's go to the most inhospitable place on the planet, <laughs> reddit.com slash slash Christianity, um, and let's help yeah. these people with all of their big problems that they have. 
All right. So, Dean, last week you put me on the spot. I answered some questions. I think we really helped some people. And now I got a few for you. All right. Far less than we did last week, but still a few. <laughs> okay. This is one month ago. Posted one month ago. So still pressing. Still a pressing need. Um, yeah, yeah. And the post is titled Idols. I'm a huge anime, DC, Marvel overall nerd. Aren't we all? <laughs> I've been I've been praying that God brings me closer to him, and I prayed for a heart check. Do this with caution. My room was filled with pics <laughs> and anime hero content. I speak with my grandmother a lot about her being Catholic and praying to Mary, also having Mary statues around. Um, sorry, there's a lot, a lot of grammatical problems. Uh, okay, so I was talking to her about the scripture, about seeing the speck in your neighbor's eye and first removing the plank out of yours kept coming up. I didn't understand until God revealed to me all of the idols I had in my own room. No, mm -hmm. I wasn't praying to them, but it is still against God commitment and had negative energy. So I got rid of, in parentheses, throw away, my huge Snorlax beanbag chair. Oh, no. <laughs> all my art I've purchased at cons and my cosplay costumes, figures, and anything anime related. And surprisingly, I feel at peace. My favorite oh, no. Pokemon is Snorlax, so he was all over my room. I was always extremely tired and can spend two whole days sleeping. <laughs> Irrelevant, but okay. <laughs> now I feel more alive and alert. I'm excited to leave everything behind and continue forward the way I believe God wants me to live. So this hmm. isn't, I guess, a question, but more of a concern that I have about this person. Um, so, Dean, do you think that these things are idols in this person's room? Did this, uh, did this user have to throw away his Snorlax beanbag chair? Is there really a difference between Statues of Mary and all of these pics of Snorlax around this kid's room? <laughs> uh, I want to get to that, but this story reminds me of a real-life story that happened in my own life. Um, thankfully, I did not have to get rid of my Snorlax pillow, but I had a friend who had a similar kind of moment of conviction about his own attachments to his, uh, his worldly possessions when I was in like middle school. And I remember he gave me uh, first all of his Weird Al CDs. Um, oh, no. Because he was too into those. Uh, I mean, oh, no, for him, very good for me. Yeah. And also, uh, he had a bunch of, like, burned CDs, um, and he gave all those to me because he felt like it was bad to steal <laughs> on the Internet. Um, okay. And I, uh, I didn't have any moral qualms about any of that, so it just boosted my media collection. So you got the CDs. You got Weird Al. Huh. Yeah, secondhand idolatry. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, what do you think about the rest of it? Though? Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I I feel like the reason that story popped into my mind is uh, one one person's idols is another person's um, adolescent defining um, comedy album. I don't know. Is that is that a good metaphor? What, yeah. One person's Snorlax uh, pillow uh, idol is another person's Snorlax pillow um, decor. It ties the whole room together. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Which weird LCD was it? I want to say it was Running with Scissors. It's a good one. It was a good one. It's a classic. Um, <laughs> I do feel uh, a bit um, concerned about this poor grandchild um, and also this poor grandmother having to go through all these things. Right. Um, there's a really fine line between very funny uh, Christian Reddits and very sad ones. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe this uh, kid just really needed to get rid of uh, all these things that were weighing him down. And who am I to judge? 
Yeah, I suppose so. I, you know, I think it's fine. I, I, it's probably a little bit maybe immature. There's definitely a thing within Christianity where you got to get rid of all your worldly possessions, right? There's that's a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they were talking about Snorlax's beanbag chair though, because that does rule so hard. <laughs> it's I can't, true. It's true. I can't imagine a single one of the of the blessed saints being like, "Yeah, the Snorlax beanbag chair has to go." I can't imagine them saying that. It doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah, it's I so agree. Cool. Like, if the Gospel of Thomas were to be written now, it would have yeah. a lot of apocryphal stories about Jesus just conjuring things like Snorlax's beanbag chairs. Absolutely. That makes sense. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, that one's done. Um, great. We've done, we've answered the question. Now here's another one. This is a little bit uh, more big picture and it isn't unrelated to the last one. So uh, try to have an open mind here. Yeah, I'm ready. This is 10 months ago. Um, so still, still pressing, I would say. Anything under a year <laughs> is something we need to deal with immediately. Yeah, it's still warm. Yeah, this one, oh, it's hot. Ooh, burning up. Okay, <laughs> the title of this post is, Do You Still Think Some Things Are Evil? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The word still there is doing a lot in the sentence, and it's very confusing, <laughs> but it's okay. Okay, so here's here it is. When I was a kid, Harry Potter and Pokemon were evil. <laughs> Sorcery and demon summoning. That's it. That's what they were doing. <laughs> Anything New Age was also labeled, quote, evil. With the emergence, mm-hmm. okay, this is this is complicated, but we'll get to what it means. With the emergence of stones for their properties, <laughs> salt lamps, and essential oils, I've seen some argue that those are evil, as many see them as quote potions. Hmm. What are your thoughts? Do you find any object evil? So, Dean, what do you think about all these? What do you think about these? these stones and salt lamps and essential oils and are they potions? And also (laughs) do you think that any object is evil? Yeah. I love a tall glass of a Himalayan salt lamp. Um, (laughs) just really restores all my mana. Yeah. Um, okay. So not evil what you're saying. I'm going to say not evil. It is a potion. It, it is a potion for sure. I mean, it it restores all the minerals you need. You give it a good look in the morning and you're good to go. (laughs) Okay. Look, right. listen, they wouldn't they wouldn't call them essential oils if they weren't essential. You have to have these oils. Everybody you, needs peppermint <laughs> behind your ears. And if you don't have it, your body's right. gonna be mad. It's gonna be so mad because you don't have what what's essential. You you don't just produce essential oils. You <laughs> no. have to go find them. You have to forage for them. <laughs> just like God intended, those essential things that you need for your body, they're gonna be at different places all around the world. Yeah, after the curse, God was like, "Listen, you're gonna have to work really hard. There's gonna be uh, thorns on all the stuff that you pick out of your out of your gardens from now on, uh, and also all those uh, all that peppermint that just came out of your ears naturally. You're gonna have to go find that on your own." Young Earth creationists are always going on about how all of the animals in the uh, Garden of Eden were vegetarians. But the more astounding thing is that all the essential oils, they are right there. <laughs> uh, I do want to back up in this question. You mentioned earlier uh, Pokemon was analogous to demon summoning. And I uh, love that. Harry Potter and Pokemon were evil. They were sorcery and demon summoning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I really, I don't know. I feel like this, uh, there's a whole world behind that association. Uh, yeah. Like th- the presumption that demons are somehow um, trapped in Pokemon cards or uh, invoked by playing Pokemon cards. Um, that's a very good anime series waiting, waiting to happen. Yeah, it is. Um, 
I'm certain there is an anime series that's already like that out there. But um, yeah, well, I remember vaguely having a poster about that anime series, but then I had to throw it out. So (laughs) so we'll never know. Yeah, (laughs) you'll never know. Okay, so there we go. We've got it all out there. Um, Oh, wait, sorry. One more. The last question. Do you find any object evil, Dean? Is there anything that you think is evil? Hmm. Any object that I think is evil. The Dave Ramsey study Bible. All right, we did it. Now we got them all. That's every question answered and answered correctly, too, I think is the important part of that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and punch out a job well done. (laughs) Cha-ching. That was so I'm uh, I'm trying a new thing in this podcast where I do the fully work right now. (laughs) It's good. It's good. Um, I can't wait until uh, I I listen back to this episode and just hear all the soft footsteps and uh, quiet noises. Yeah, I'm doing them all. It's going to be great. Hey, um, so we've been we've been to the most inhospitable place. Uh, and now we're coming back to hospitality. We're going to get at what is going on here with this big idea and what um, and what this, this smooth, fine French gentleman Jacques Derrida has to say about it. Um, Jacques Derrida is a wild dude, um, by the way. Just going to say that to the episode. I'm going to maintain it. Very big hair. He, his hair, huge. Hates Seinfeld. Never seen it. Um, <laughs> such a dumb thing. Okay. Anyways. Um, yeah. So we wanted to talk a little bit about hospitality because it's a big idea for Christians. And you always hear Christians saying things about how you ought to be hospitable and how the Bible says you need to be hospitable. But what does it really all mean? So to get to the bottom of that, what we're going to do in this episode is uh, start off by kind of taking a quick peek at the way that some Christians have talked about hospitality in recent times. Uh, we're going to take one sort of uh, one of those loosey-goosey liberal takes, and we're going to take one of those um, those those fine and upstanding conservative takes and see what's kind of underneath them all. And then we're going to move on to Derrida and Caputo and see what they have to say and like what we can do in light of uh, Derrida's reading. And finally, we're going to um, give it that, that fresh, hot Marxist spin that you all love so much and talk about uh, the politics of hospitality. So there we go. That's the roadmap. I've laid it all out before us. Let's start by uh, going to this article by Christopher Smith uh, in Sojourners called um, Another Evangelicalism is Possible. Uh, It's kind of, I don't know, it's an article that's trying to work out like these themes that we've been talking about in recent weeks, uh, whether or not evangelicalism is salvageable, how tied it is to some of its uh, worst recent political uh, decisions. Um, And it opens up uh, with this story about how Taylor University announced that it chose uh, Mike Pence to be a commencement speaker. And later on, a bunch of students, upset, rightly so, uh, made a big petition denouncing that selection. Um, And that kind of created a, a certain conversation about Mike Pence's values and evangelicalism, uh, all, all of these kinds of uh, tropes that we've been uh, going over in the last several weeks, right? Like evangelicalism says that it thinks these things, uh, Mike Pence and Donald Trump obviously don't embody these things. And so what are you supposed to do? Um, but one kind of interesting piece of all this is the question of hospitality, Right. So if you're supposed to love your neighbors, uh, what are you supposed to do about a presidency that is ostensibly backed by evangelical Christianity that is uh, extremely inhospitable in in every sense? Right. Not open to um, people who are different, people who are others, but also literally inhospitable in that it's it's not open to people coming (laughs) to this country, um, especially if they're fleeing. And so uh, Christopher Smith is is uh, yeah, Christopher Smith is is working with these themes. And he says uh, this. 
In contrast to the hostility of the Trump-Pence administration toward its political opponents, evangelicals might excel in our hospitality, going out of our way to create spaces in which conversation and collaboration can unfold. True hospitality is not driven by fear, but rather courageously steps forward to engage the stranger, seeking to build bridges and not walls. Um, so here we are. Uh, this is Christopher Smith's sort of answer. Um, faced with the, the political challenges of, of Trump and Pence and the crazy world of evangelicalism, what we've got to do, uh, if you want to be an evangelical anyway, uh, is be more hospitable. That's the key. Um, what do you think about all that, Matt? The idea here is just that, um, you know, the Bible says one thing and these other people are doing the opposite of what the Bible says. And, you know, if you're going to be an evangelical, you should at least listen to the Bible. And I get it. I think that's, I mean, you know, it's a tactic. Um, I think that the, there's a problem with it, though. Um, well, I, the problem is, is that, like, why hospitality? How does hospitality actually work itself out? Um, at this stage, like, does hospitality mean open borders? Does it mean, you know, um, does it mean like a, a path to citizenship? Like, what does hospitality mean, sort of politically, in the in terms of, um, in terms of like immigration and refugees? And I think that is a question that's worth asking. Um, Christians have this tendency. I mean, Christians, conservative and liberal alike, have a tendency to speak like really vaguely about these things. You know, using big words like hospitality and justice as stand-ins for who knows what, really. And I think that's a big problem, the inability to speak really exactly about what hospitality might actually mean beyond just it being courageous and building bridges is a problem. But just the same, it's a rhetorical technique. And, um, you know, probably if you ask this person what they meant by hospitality, they would say something like a path towards citizenship or something, right? But it, it is an inexact and vague way to talk. But it does seem, it makes it seem what they, whatever like position they're holding, it makes it seem biblical or, uh, in you know, really, um, really have to do with social justice or something. So, yeah, it's an interesting way of speaking, but I think it's not the most exact way of speaking. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And this is something that Christianity has a tendency to do, which is to take a word that is very important, like hospitality, and inflate it to be a signifier that becomes, uh, like you said earlier, a stand-in for all kinds of other commitments that are either stated or unstated. And hospitality is a really fascinating thing because uh, a lot of progressive Christians um, – I think have uh, used that term as a way of not just challenging the the inhospitality of um, you know presidential politics or something like that, but also like legitimately opening themselves up to other people and other ideas. Uh, it is a really transformative kind of word, um, even when it gets really inflated. But the question always becomes, well, uh, what are the, what are its limits, and where mm -hmm. does it go, and what can it do, and can it not do, or what does it obscure? All those kinds of questions. And Derrida is always asking those kinds of questions. So we're going to get to him um, in a little bit. But I think it's worth spending a little more time trying to parse out uh, also what Christians think about it. So yeah, the liberal Christian kind of motif is to uh, deploy hospitality as a way of challenging ourselves and challenging other people. Um, but Matt, what do you think about the, the conservative kind of invoking of hospitality? I have to admit that I don't see it very often, but I know that you've been looking around for some takes. 
Yeah, I think that you're right. You don't see it very often. And I think that is because, I mean, sorry, this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but, you know, when we're saying that the word hospitality is inflated or something, you know, it comes to mean a lot of things or, or a vague amount of things. I mean, that's actually a really important part of why you don't see it in more conservative circles, or if you do see it, it's not the same way. So like in rhetoric, there's this term that specifically describes the situation that we're in right here. Um, that is called, uh, there's this term that's called an ideograph where a word, uh, a word comes to be like symbolic for a whole bunch of ideas, like packed into one word, basically. Um, uh, Daryl Wanzer Serrano talks about it a lot in his book on the young Lords, which we might get to later, but, but the idea here is that like the word, uh, hospitality is like a big signal fire to other people who are reading that to interpret, you know, what they're saying in a really particular way that hospitality isn't just hospitality as such, but it means all of these other sort of like liberal ideas about Christianity. Um, and that's why you don't see it in a lot of conservative stuff, because it's a signal to liberal Christians and not to conservative Christians. That's but, a good point. Yeah. 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 I mean, at least again, that's my observation for this podcast. And maybe, um, maybe there are conservative Christians who use it in different contexts, but that, that warrants its own rhetorical analysis too, I suppose. So <laughs> there you go. But I did find a few cases where um, where uh, more conservative sources are using hospitality, but in a very interesting way. So I went to the um, the only one true and good source for uh, biblical analysis, the Gospel <laughs> Coalition. I can never get away from this website. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, this podcast has made me read the Gospel Coalition way more than I ever would have in my entire life. So... <laughs> Um, a big some, mistake. Yeah, big mistake. Yeah, so I found this article. It's actually a few years old, but um, it's fine. Um, it's for, uh, it's called "How to Practice Biblical Hospitality," which I'm I'm interested in. How do you do it? Uh, by <laughs> someone named Pat Ennis. I don't know who that is, but that's what their name is. So um, this is the framing for the article. I'll just kind of read the article because it is very funny. Uh, Pat Ennis writes. Whether enjoying personal devotions, a Bible study, or a worship service, what mental images emerge when you're presented with passages that encourage hospitality? This is some real, this mm. is some real, uh, I'm a journalism major for one semester type of writing, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. For many, the images mirror glossy magazine photos, an immaculate home, a gourmet menu, an exquisite <laughs> table setting. And while some of these images could be applied to biblical hospitality in certain situations, what they actually portray is entertaining. <laughs> when hospitality is described in the scriptures, there are zero instructions reg regarding home decor, menu, or table setting. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I can't believe that's true. Yeah. Okay. So Pat Ennis, that's, this is their whole thing. Okay. Hospitality. It's in the Bible. What do you think about when you think about hospitality? You probably think about some like better homes and garden shit. You probably think about <laughs> <laughs> some, some fancy tablecloth, some folded napkins, but guess what? That's not in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably um, thinking about the property brothers dinner theater. <laughs> that's what you're, you're thinking of house centers international and they're staging. Um, yeah. So Pat Ennis then is out to give us, uh, give us the, the lowdown on what hospitality actually looks like in the Bible. And okay. For all of the gospel coalition's faults, and there are many, <laughs> they do, they did do a, a nice thing where they did list a bunch of Bible verses about hospitality in the blog. So 
um, while the more liberal Christians just alluded to it like, as, a, as a signal fire where I know what it means, uh, Pat, at least, puts them all right here in front of me so I don't have to look for them myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's biblical. What can you do? Okay. So Pat lays out some biblical stuff about hospitality, and then they go on to give some very practical steps on how to be hospitable. Um, before we get to the practical steps, I'll just tell you really quickly about the Bible verses. And you probably mm -hmm. recognize, you probably have some of them in your mind already, but uh, here we go. So the first one um, is Hebrews 13. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So there you go. You get that story about Abram uh, in the in those in like Genesis or whatever it is. I don't know. I'm not Bible quiz mm -hmm. anymore. Okay. Um, but sounds good. So uh, be hospitable to strangers, says Hebrews 13. That's um, instructive, but not super descriptive. And that's fine. Um, then in first Peter chapter four, uh, it says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention for whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. So as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desire, but by the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline Yikes. yourselves. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. Uh, I should have um, softened that one. The end of all things is near, and therefore be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain con constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift uh, each of you has received. Actually, and after that, I didn't um, include it here, but it goes on to talk about caring for the prisoners. So pretty legit. First Peter. All right. Yeah. Hospitality. Um, even in the end of times, just uh, just be nice to one another. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, Kirk Cameron. Yeah, Kirk Cameron. What are you doing? Okay, so then the last one is a little bit lengthy, and it is Luke 14. It's a parable. Dean, do you want to read that parable? Sure, sure. Thanks. <clears throat> yes, uh, I'll give you a bit of a break here. Um Luke 14, here it goes. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable, he being Jesus. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's some great grift advice from Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> he said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. <laughs> what a disaster. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Um, just having some quick flashbacks to uh, McGee and me. They do a whole a whole bit about this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, deep cut. I don't know. I don't know if it's a flashback or an un unwelcome uh, piece of trauma that has come up in this hospitality episode. But in any case, uh, <laughs> great did parable you, from Jesus. Did you know that every time you even think about McGee and me, uh, James Dobson does get $10? <laughs> uh yeah that's too bad i gotta i gotta purge this somehow i gotta do one of those uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind things just about mcgee and me yeah you can't let james dobson get any more money it's imperative no uh, i gotta call jim carrey 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so we have all of these things from the Gospel Coalition. Those are things in the Bible. You can't argue with those, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, so um, what I appreciate about the Gospel Coalition is that they don't just leave hospitality as like a vague thing. They tell you exactly what you need to do to be hospitable. <laughs> those things they tell you to do, though, are like kind of silly, but let's talk about them anyways. So, after all the Bible verses, this is what they tell us. If we are to cultivate a heart of biblical hospitality, we must refuse to rely on our achievements or to dwell on our failures. And we must lay aside past rejections and grudges. So far, that's all great. Instead, we must seek to climb the hospitality mountain. The work <laughs> is not easy, but it's worth it. The ascent begins with developing proper climbing strategies. Here are some to get you started. Okay. Oh, so, I mean, seriously, this is fine. This is totally fine. Exactly. You shouldn't dwell on your achievements, your past failures. That's all. You don't worry about your rejections and grudges. If the next, if the climbing strategies were like, um, advocate for open borders, liberate people from prison <laughs> camps, it would be awesome. But instead, the Gospel Coalition gives us this. This is what hospitality means to them concretely. Collect and file simple, inexpensive recipes for desserts and meals. <laughs> <laughs> Make a list of people who would be encouraged by your offer of hospitality. Mm -hmm. Make a plan to invite your first guest soon. Start simple. Spontaneously inviting someone home after church is a great beginning. Pray that our hospitable God will give you joy in demonstrating his character to others. Remember that <laughs> memories require time and energy to create. Okay. Yeah, time happens. You're right. Purpose. <laughs> Purpose to nurture a heart for biblical hospitality that sincerely communicates, come back soon. So the Gospel Coalition read all of these things about hospitality, and they're like, yeah, what the Bible's talking about is inviting people to your house to eat lunch. It's talking about collecting and filing simple recipes for desserts and meals. It's, it's talking about making a Pinterest board of all of the best recipes you can make for your friends. <laughs> Uh, I wonder how many feet up this is on Hospitality Mountain. <laughs> this is uh, this is dangling uh, dangling from a rope ten feet off the ground. <laughs> now, uh, don't get yeah. me wrong. I think that inviting people to your house and eating dinner and making food for them is fine and chill and good, and you should probably do that. I don't know. Having people over for dinner, it's great. Uh, it's a low bar, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, what makes me think, what, what all this makes me think of is uh, one biblical lesson about hospitality that is conveniently uh, forgotten. Um, I'm no biblical scholar, as I often like to remind everybody, but I'm pretty sure the, uh, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, um, some people want to make it into a thing about um, sexuality, but uh, guess what? You're wrong. It's actually about hospitality. That's what I've heard from biblical scholars. Uh, and because Sodom and Gomorrah are so uh, inhospitable, um, they get, you know, the fire of God or whatever. So uh, the Gospel Coalition didn't get that one. Wonder why. Wonder, wh wonder why. I do wonder why. Sincerely so. <laughs> uh, man. Um, if anyone does want to invite me to their house for dinner, though, please let me know. Yeah, but be sure to have filed all of your inexpensive recipes because I'm not going to come over to just any old house. And when I come over, I'm going to ask to see the file. Yeah, yeah. And, and don't you forget that memories take uh, time and energy to create, so I'm going to need you to be uh, working pretty hard to make some memories with me. <laughs> oh, man. 
<laughs> okay, so hospitality. What does that word mean? For the love of God, someone tell me. <laughs> uh, well, um, you will and you will not find out what that word means from Jacques Derrida, a wild French postmodern philosopher, the first in our series. This has been a very long time to introduce him. Uh, we're halfway through the episode, but guess what? Here he is uh, making his debut. Um, Derrida, if you don't know who he was, um, he's since passed, but he uh, is a, a French philosopher who did all kinds of work on uh, topics like language and justice and uh, the idea of the kind of messianic impulse um, in the world and in Jewish philosophy, uh, but also on hospitality. And he's always kind of uh, working with these different terms, asking what they mean and what they obscure and what they don't mean. And he invented a, a kind of, well, Invented is maybe not the right, not the way he would like to put it, but he introduced us to the idea of deconstruction. Uh, that's like his his big claim to fame, and that uh, kind of way of of reading texts and looking at how texts deconstruct themselves is something that made Derrida uh, really famous and also made him uh, of great interest to people, certain Christians anyway, like John Caputo or like uh, people at my school, like uh, James Oltice, um, who I've mentioned on this podcast before. So uh, yeah, um, Derrida does all of that with the word hospitality, kind of looking for um, where our assumptions determine that word and where they also obscure all the kinds of weird things that are happening in that word and what kind of things actually um, are required for hospitality that might not be ho so hospitable after all. So you can read all kinds of really complicated and good philosophical essays and stuff by Derrida on hospitality. There's literally, I don't know, there's, there's a <laughs> talk about a mountain of hospitality. There's a mountain of, of Derrida's writings about hospitality. Uh, but if you want an extremely short uh, condensed version, and it's the one we're going to work with for better or for worse in this episode, you could go to a, a book called Deconstruction in a Nutshell, um, part of it is uh, an interview with Derrida, and then the other part of it is John Caputo kind of summarizing and trying to um, put deconstruction into a nutshell, trying to make these, these terms accessible. Um, so Matt and I had a look at that. Um, Matt, anything really kind of stick out to you about what Caputo says about hospitality or how he kind of directs us to Derrida's making that word a little more complicated? Yeah, totally. Um... The Derrida stuff is definitely hard, um, and John Caputo does make it a tad more <laughs> accessible, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think, okay, so uh, with the liberals, hospitality is this, like, big signal word that is um, doing a lot of work. And then with the conservatives, hospitality is a word that is doing very little work. It's about, you know, inviting people over for dinner. Um, but uh, Caputo has a lot of thoughts uh, alongside Derrida uh, about hospitality, and I think that it might just be helpful to to read a bit of it, if, if you don't mind. I don't. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I keep asking your permission for things on this podcast. Like, you're going to say no. Blank uh, check. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Caputo writes, The word hospitality means to invite and welcome the stranger, both on the personal level how do I welcome the other into my home and on the level of the state raising socio-political questions about refugees, migrants, and quote, foreign languages, minority ethnic groups, etc. Derrida's interest is drawn to the fact that by virtue of its etymology, the word hospitality carries its opposite within itself, 
That's a surprise, says Caputo. It's not a surprise. That's what Derrida does every single time. That's what deconstruction looks like. No one's surprised here. Caputo's just being Caputo. Uh, The word hospitality derives from the Latin hospice, which is formed from hostis, hmm, which originally meant a stranger and came to take on the meaning of the enemy or hostile. um, Or sorry, hostile stranger. Um, So... Hospitality um, is like the welcome extended to the guest is a function of power of the host to remain master of the premises. A host is someone who takes on or, or receives strangers, who gives to the stranger even while remaining in control. There is thus a stress built into it. Okay. So what we got going on here is kind of complicated, but it's pretty interesting. This is why I like Derrida. This is why I like Caputo, I guess, sometimes. Um so we have this word hospitality. We think it means welcoming people into our homes. We think it means making dinner for them. We think it means something about the state. It means about letting letting refugees, immigrants, foreign languages, minority ethnic groups in, etc. But what's interesting is that the word itself carries with its uh, carries with it its opposite. Um, so to be hospitable, you have to have control over something in the first place, right? Hospitality is a game of power where you can let someone, you know, you can invite someone into your home, but like they come in knowing it's your home. So there's like that stress, there's that tension, there's the opposite of hospitality built into hospitality. And that's like the interesting thing to Derrida. These are called aporia, you know, these like unresolvable tensions within ideas. And uh, yeah, they're pretty fascinating. I think this is a, it's an interesting way to start getting into the idea. And it's definitely not something that either, (laughs) either liberal nor conservative reading of Christian hospitality has gotten to in the least. Yeah, I mean, um, all this sounds like some weird philosophy, but I think that there's a, a, a very intuitive kind of thing going on here, too. Like, if you ever go to someone's house uh, for, for dinner or anything else and they say, make yourself at home, um, you know, that's a, a nicety and a pleasantry, but probably you you wouldn't act as though you were in your own home, right? You wouldn't go to, like, the refrigerator and just get whatever you want. Um, you wouldn't, like, I don't know, be maybe as careless with certain things around their house as you might be around uh, your house. Um, there's there's a certain uh, unease that even as a, a person being hosted by somebody who, you know, maybe you don't know extremely well, but they're being hospitable to you, um, you're going to feel that kind of unease, or at least I do. I mean, maybe that's just because I have a, a, a unhealthy amount of social anxiety, but there's this kind of um, I think uh, awkwardness that's always built into even even the best of hospitable situations. And sometimes that awkwardness is actually what makes it so fun, right? Um, you're kind of getting to know one another and trying to learn how to feel more comfortable around each other. Uh, but that's the idea, right? That Derrida says you, you're always kind of, um, when you're being hospitable, you're always allowing it to happen on your own terms. Um, and he goes on to say a little bit more that we can draw out too. He says, uh, the host base is someone who has the power to host someone so that neither the alterity, that's a fancy word for kind of like the otherness or the, the total difference of the stranger, nor the power of the host is annulled by the hospitality. There's an essential self-limitation built right into the idea of hospitality which preserves the distance between one's own and the stranger, between one's own property and inviting the other into one's home. So there's always a little hostility in all hosting and hospitality, constituting a certain hostipitality. Um, that's a very Derrida Caputo thing to do as well, to smash up some words together. Um, uh, but I like that point, right? That uh, there's this kind of self-limitation 
that's built into hospitality, um, even when we want to inflate it to be total or something like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, okay, just like you said a minute ago, like this might sound like some some like, you know, some bullshit philosophy. On the other hand, it's actually the dumbest and easiest thing that we all understand already, but is like completely <laughs> yeah. obfuscated because of our like the solidity of our own sort of like social understandings, right? I mean, all, all this all that's basically saying is that someone can tell you, you know, hey, welcome to my house, make yourself at home or whatever, and you're still going to be like, yeah, but are you guys a shoes on or off house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Or like, you know, you're not going to you're not going to like welcome yourself into someone else's house and like, you know, they they they're like make yourself at home or whatever and then you like make your own sandwich from their fridge or whatever. That that you wouldn't you wouldn't do that pro- probably. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you would do that. I don't know you, but I'm just saying most people wouldn't. Yeah, so it, it is like um it's it's uh straightforward but uh in a really hard to locate sort of way. Yeah, I, I guess kind of on the same point, Caputo goes on to say this. Make yourself at home means please feel at home. Act as if you were at home. But remember, it's not true. This is not your home, but mine. And you're <laughs> you're expected to respect my property. When I say welcome to the other, come across my threshold, I'm not surrendering my property or my identity. I'm not turning myself into Cora, which uh, welcomes all as an open receptacle. That's another, it's a whole other thing. Don't worry about it. Uh, if I say welcome, I am not renouncing my mastery, something that becomes transparent in people whose hospitality is a way of showing off how much they own or who, or who make their guests uncomfortable and afraid to touch a thing. So there, there we go, right? Hospitality doesn't mean this house is yours. It still is, uh, it's a way to maintain your property power and status and even like flaunt it to other people. And then, uh, so hospitality here is, is a, is an increasingly difficult idea. It's, it's saying on the one hand, please, you know, come in, um, you know, you're, you can make yourself comfortable, but you actually can't don't forget who's in charge here. And that's not very much hospitality. If you think about it. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, what's great about this too is Caputo is using this kind of, uh, more intimate or, or like personal metaphor to, or, or situation to draw the stuff out. But like you said earlier, there is a a socio-political piece of this too, right? And that comes to bear so often when people talk, even like when liberals will talk about inviting refugees, for instance, into, um, a society. So it's like, yes, you know, we want everybody, everybody who can come, but we want you to be Americans, right? Like yeah. we want you to become an American citizen and, and be proud to be an American because it's America that brought you here or, or whatever. Um, so the presumption is you're allowed to come. Anyone's allowed to come provided you sign on the right dotted lines or you're welcome. You're you, you, you yourself feel that this is, you know, um, property that you could respect. Uh, and, and in some cases it's also, uh, don't forget, you know, that we still own this place, right? You should learn English or something else. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there's an obvious kind of political scale that, uh, really, um, makes these problems that you might have when you walk into somebody's home a lot more, uh, deadly in many cases too, uh, when people try to get into a country or something like that. Yeah, totally. So you might be thinking at this point, okay. So Christians are supposed to be about hospitality, but what Matt and Dean are saying, well, what Derrida's saying, is that being hospitable is actually not possible, or at least not in the way that, you know, you think that hospitality is possible. And, I mean, kind of, but uh, Caputo uh, and Derrida both go on to say a little bit more about hospitality that makes the, the whole thing really weird and complicated. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, here's kind of the, the concluding, like, what do you do with this kind of thought? Hospitality really starts to happen when I push against this limit, this threshold, this paralysis, inviting hospitality to cross its own threshold and limit its own self-limitation to become a gift beyond hospitality. Thus, for hospitality to occur, it is necessary for hospitality to go beyond hospitality. That requires that the host must, in a moment of madness, tear up the understanding between him and the guest, act with excess, make an absolute gift of his property, which is, of course, impossible. But that's the only way the guest can go away feeling as if he was really made at home. Now that is an idea. <laughs> this whole thing is very interesting. It's like, uh, it's, you know, so far it's like a meditation on how weird it is to go into someone else's house. But then um, then the end thought is like, well, if you want to really think about hospitality in, in a way that is hospitality beyond hospitality, you have to think about like how your property isn't your own property. Yeah, how would you make that a gift? How would you give the things that you have to someone else? And that is what hospitality requires of us not the uh, protectionist type of hospitality. And um, uh, okay, that's not an easy idea for sure, but it's a really interesting way of framing the tension. Yeah, I mean, it's not too crazy, right? Like uh, the things we talk about on this podcast all the time kind of involve thinking through these sorts of limits. Like when we talk about uh, how Christians act in the book of Acts or something, where there's no private property, everybody works according to their ability, receives according to their need. That's a, a microcosm of something that we want to scale up politically too, if you're invested in communist ideas or something like that, right? So um, the, the notion is precisely that you're trying to be hospitable in an authentic way, which means that you might actually not uh, get according to more than you need or something. Hmm. Um, it's, it's the excess that uh, ultimately makes sure that everybody is well taken care of in a real, in a real kind of way. If we, if we thought through what it would mean to have a hospitable society, it would mean renouncing uh, private property for sure. Um, and I, obviously, I think Derrida is actually saying something a lot more radical even than, yeah. say, um, communism or something. But there there are, are connection points that I think even help communists uh, push themselves beyond their own horizon and continue to ask hard questions about are we really expanding people's uh, feelings of, of justice and, and their own being at home in the world. And those are really good questions that postmodernists, I think, can pose both to Christians and socialists. The, uh, the hospitable communist isn't here to take your toothbrush, but the hospitable communist is here to give you their toothbrush. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You don't want mine, but if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yours if you want it. Um, yeah, there's an interesting moment, too, where uh, Caputo mentions here, he says in a footnote in that passage you just read, Matt, the limit case of hospitality would be the saints who give away their home and all their possessions to the poor, which would not be hospitality any longer, but a saintly excess. Uh, he mentions a book by Edith Wishagrod called Saints and Postmodernism as a, a thing that you could read, and it is a, a very cool book. Um, but I like that idea that um, the saint is the person who is truly hospitable because they actually do do this thing that is very bizarre, right? They get rid of their property and they get rid of their home and they really do follow after Jesus in that radical sort of way. So this is what that kid was doing to you and he was giving you his weird LCD. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, a weird LCD? Certainly this is saintly excess. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And now it's mine, and no one else can have it. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, listen, that's just the risk that you open yourself up to when you give somebody else your weird LCD. Time to do the... And I'm just going to pass it on. <laughs> time to do the radical hospitality polka. <laughs> the listenerhood of the traveling weird LCD. <laughs> there you go. Cool. <laughs> Well, the Derda and Caputo give us like some really hard things to kind of wrestle with politically, but I think it's helpful because it does push us into politics, right? Like it uh Derda and Caputo get to the question of property pretty quick in the discussion of hospitality. And um that's a place that I think, yeah, the liberal Christians try to go and the conservative Christians don't want to go, but neither can like really engage either like, you know, the the sort of dichotomy of personal and political um, in the way that Derrida and Caputo have. Um, but I think that we can see some of the ways that, I mean, hospitality is politicized in Marxism, just like, you know, what Dean said, that it requires you to renegotiate property and who gets to own what and like how you're going to share things with other people. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, I mean, hospitality should push us into these questions about, about borders and property and the arrangement of labor. Absolutely. Is it hospitable to invite your workers to work and then not pay them very much or not let them take breaks or, you know, um, barely care if they pass out on the floor, like at Amazon or whatever. Yeah, definitely. And it gets, uh, hospitality gets politicized all the time, especially, I mean, the most obvious is the thing that we kind of open this conversation with is the conversation around refugees and welcoming or not welcoming refugees and, and how to do that and what that would really mean. Um, it's a tough thing to figure out in the discourse because, like we said earlier, uh, liberals actually have a hard time uh, coming to terms with all the weirdness that's involved in hospitality, the stuff that Derrida and Caputo uh, point out. And that is really tough. Uh, it's also tough because it would be wrong to say that it's hospitable to welcome the stranger who is coming to your door because you bombed the hell out of their country or something like that. Um, like (laughs) what word we should use for that situation. I don't know. Maybe justice, uh, maybe, I don't know, repentance or confession or something, but hospitality, probably not uh, the right one because it assumes a position of virtue when in fact what we're really doing is uh, trying to deal with the fallout of our own sins or our own, you know, the consequences of our mistakes. Um, so hospitality being politicized in a liberal democracy like the United States is really difficult because it's almost like we lack a political language or a political imagination to even deal with what we're doing as a political project in the world. Yeah, I think that's a really good thought. Um, it's not, it's not hospitality if you've destroyed someone else's home and then you invite them into yours. That's, uh, (laughs) that's not how that works. Yeah. You can't go burn your neighbor's house down and then be like, do you want to come over? Because I've got some, uh, uh, really good Pinterest boards. I want to try out tonight. (laughs) I have assembled a charcuterie, uh, plate and you can have (laughs) some of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But you do have to take your shoes off. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so we've talked about a lot of things on the show when it comes to politics and churches and how they operate as hospitable spaces. Um, And uh, kind of in light of the larger conversation about hospitality, a few of those kind of things spring to mind, though, where churches and political groups have kind of like tried to negotiate hospitality, especially like when it comes to space and kind of coexisting with one another's. so, I mean, immediately, I guess I think of the Black Panther Party and um, the programs about free breakfast and also the Young Lords and the uh, 
church offensives in Chicago and New York. I don't know. Dean, do you see those connections or, or uh, can we make them more explicit somehow? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's a little known story, I think, for, for a lot of people that the free breakfast programs of the Panthers, uh, they operated oftentimes, not always, but often out of churches that volunteered their own space. Um, in one case, there was a, a church, um, gosh, the name of this pastor is escaping me, which is too bad. Uh, but he he was a, a black pastor himself who had been activated in the civil rights movement, and he allowed the Panthers to use the space, and it created this really interesting dialogue between the congregation and the Black Panther Party. And in another case, uh, also in California, both of these are in California, a Catholic priest, uh, Monsignor Boyle, um, he also invited the Panthers to use um, his basement as a, the basement of his church for these programs. And um, both of these ministers ended up uh, over time being politicized by their own hospitality because not only were they just letting people come into their space and use it for whatever, you know, it's not just like a like a YMCA building or something, um, but they were they ended up having to go to bat for the Black Panthers later on because they got to know them, right? They they really did tell them to treat the space like make yourself at home, and all of a sudden it transformed uh, everybody involved. Um, I don't know. I think the Young Lords are, are kind of more interesting because of the differences in Chicago and New York uh, with the church offenses. Matt, do you have any kind of impressions about that? Yeah, the Young Lords are a little bit more complicated than the Black Panther Party, even though they're actually asking for something very similar. Um, the Young Lords started in Chicago, um, and then they spread to New York and Oakland as well, uh, if I recall correctly, at least. But and anyways, they were, um, in case you've not listened to our past episodes about the Young Lords, they're a uh, kind of like the Black Panthers in some respects, but Puerto Rican, and they are a street gang turned like political activist group led by this guy named Chacha Jimenez. And it's a real pretty interesting story. Uh, definitely worth looking more into if you're interested. But anyways, um, what they tried to do in almost all of the situations they found themselves in were trying to carve out spaces of like autonomy and dignity for, um, for other Puerto Rican people in the area. Um, so they did this in a lot of different ways. Um, for example, in Chicago, they ended up like, uh, one of the like more radical actions they did was was that they uh, they occupied um, McCormick Seminary and asked for money <laughs> to uh, buy like low income housing for people that were who were going to be displaced in the area because of gentrification, and um, it worked. And uh, they weren't. I mean, the folks at McCormick Seminary weren't like super thrilled to give them a lot of money, but they did, um, <laughs> which is good. They should have. Um, in other instances, though, they did these other things like that were called offensives. And they would, um, uh, you know, they had a few different offensives, but the church offensive is the most interesting, at least to us, because of the, you know, context of our podcast. But the idea in the church offensive was that the young lords would, um, they found like, you know, churches that were in, were in important areas, like geographically, and they wanted to use those spaces basically as community centers. So like, um, it happened in Chicago and in New York, and I think probably a few other places too, but sometimes the history on these are a little bit hard to determine. Um, but the idea basically is that they, in Chicago, um, uh, Chacha Jimenez and the Young Lords, they, there's this, uh, Methodist church that they wanted to like rent out space in and, um, they, you know, they asked the church and the church is like, well, I don't know about this. Um, maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in response, they just kept asking 
And then it still didn't work. So then they would start going to church and like sitting through the sermons and then speaking up when there's an opportunity to ask the congregation, you know, please like open your doors to us. We want to use it. And the church was like, well, I don't think so still. And like, <laughs> you know, it gets, it's pretty extreme, especially like when what they're, what, what they're asking for is, you know, pretty minor. They want to use the church as a space for their community to serve the people who like, you know, are surrounding the area. And also they're like, kind of pay them even like, you know, what, what more can you ask for? But the people of the church are really turned off for very political reasons um, because the young Lords are, you know, left-wing people to say the least. Um, so like what they end up doing is they occupy the church. And um, in Chicago, what happens when they occupy the church is that the, um, the congregants call the police and they're going to get like pushed out. But then Bruce Johnson, the um, the pastor of this Methodist church, is like, uh, when the police show up, uh, Bruce Johnson is like, no, it's it's cool. Like, they they have the right to be here. We're, we don't want them to be kicked out. And, like, that moment um, of Bruce Johnson's sort of acceptance, even though it's kind of like forcing his hand in this tough moment, um, it is, I think, hospitable. It's, you know, saying, like, listen, this place where we didn't want you to be, now we do. Now we want you to be here. Um and it is a forced hospitality, an enforced hospitality. Um, but it's like a hospitality where they're put, like the young lords are putting their bodies on the line. I mean, they knew that they're going to have the cops called on them from the beginning. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and Bruce Johnson takes it up, right? He sees it as an opportunity to, to exercise that Christian hospitality, the hospitality that goes beyond the hospitality of this is my space, not your space. And it goes so, it goes so far that like, after the young lords occupy the building, they like renamed the church. It's called the people's church now. And they do all kinds of young lords stuff. Um, and that alienates a ton of the people that go to church there. Um, and that's something to think about too. But um, just the same, uh, the church uh, ends up having a lot more of an interesting and radical legacy because of it. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard because like, you know, you don't want people to be alienated and feel weird. But at the same time, I don't know. Something cool happened. What can you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it brings up so many questions about, like, at what point are people allowed to even refuse hospitality or can you enforce hospitality? Is that a thing that can really, um, you know, be uh, foisted on a community rather than something voluntarily chosen? And, like, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but the strange thing is that in both Chicago and New York, the political challenge that's being posed by the young lords to the church is, uh, are you going to be hospitable or not? And when the church says yes, then the young lords are all too happy to, you know, figure out how to do that. Uh, and when the church says no, then the young lords say, well, then we're going to make you be hospitable, <laughs> uh, which is like a pretty wild thing. Right. Um, but it raises all kinds of important questions about what do you do when Christians aren't being hospitable, even though, you know, ostensibly like, uh, is there an alternative for evangelicalism? As we talked about earlier, yeah. they're supposed to be even, uh, hospi hospitable, right? It's, it's a biblical thing or whatever. Um, so I don't know, uh, Christians have a hard time talking about hospitality. And I think Derrida is useful for kind of making all that more and more complicated and, and getting us to ask questions about what we really mean and what we're really willing to give up. Um, but in addition to all that cool postmodern theory, um, the sort of tradition of like organizing and left-wing groups, uh, also sort of provokes thoughts about hospitality, um, that emerge out of like material situations. Yeah. So I don't know how to like put those two things together, but I think it's helpful. Um, personally, I, I, I don't like the whole like 
Marxist anti postmodernist divide or whatever, like it's useful to kind of let these two things breathe um, and see what happens. Yeah, I think so too. Man, it just kind of occurs to me after after having read all those Bible verses about hospitality and then telling the story about the young lords again, it is actually really funny um, to put those two things together in terms of hospitality because I don't think before right now I would have actually kind of considered that as a hospitable moment. But now that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of putting these two things, juxtaposing them um, makes me think about them differently, right? Like be hospitable to one another without complaining. <laughs> all you church people out there when when these folks show up to your church don't complain or even like or 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 like um you know you show up to the banquet and uh if you choose the place of honor and someone else better shows up you're kicked out of your seat um and it's the same thing you know the young lords show up and they don't want to move out of their seat but then they leave so there you go <laughs> friend well the young lords are, is that <laughs> the Young Lords is a great way of uh, reading into that parable exactly what you're saying, right? That um, those who uh, exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, that's sort of the whole premise is the Young Lords are saying, you know, we've been humble for a really long time and now we're going to get exalted. <laughs> and I dig that. Like we're taking the the spot that we're supposed to be at. Like Jesus invited us to this banquet and he says we're allowed to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Chacha Jimenez, just an angel. He's showing up at your doorstep. You never know. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to say he is. <laughs> yeah, well, it does make you think differently about like church space, uh, for sure, especially if there are some folks who want to use it and you're feeling kind of weird about it. Um, of course, this only applies to uh, good left-wing groups and not uh, fascists or something. Th- those people, <laughs> you, you can keep them, out of the, keep them out of your chairs at your, at your weddings. That's the hostility part of hospitality. <laughs> That's right. It's very, it's very hospitable. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon and support us there at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can send us an email at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Uh, if you are interested in hospitality, you can definitely check out that new issue of G's. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of really neat things going on there. Um, we're just really excited about what is happening at G's, and we're looking for opportunities to keep boosting their signal, um, and we, uh, we encourage you to do that as well. Uh, the music, as always, is by Amori Armstrong, and the outro is from The Illogical Spoon. See you then. Come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early.